Okay, would anybody like to include anybody in our prayers this morning? The name of the, oh, sorry, I do. I, I think I've mentioned this um, dear, dear friend of ours um, before, John Meehan, who was the founder and president of Magdalen College, um, where I taught for several years. John was ousted. Some nasty things went on, and, and I don't know the full details of it, but um, my four or five years at Magdalen was one of the greatest gifts in my life to be at a small, I, I had taught at Catholic College in, in California, but Magdalen was different. It, it, it was modeled on the, it, it was a great books program, but the, the student life, the communal life was modeled on the Benedictine rule, common good, so all the kids were asked to take care of chores, you know, do the cooking. I mean, they were involved in everything. It's the first educational experience I've ever had, I had ever had in my life in which the kids were being asked to grow in their wills. There was a formation aspect. That was unheard of. I mean, if you could imagine, I taught all these schools before where the focus was always on the mind, the intellect. Higher education is devoted to truth. That was a stunning experience for me because it made me aware of how much the will is neglected in our culture. You know, in our families. What the family, I mean, families have kids and they think kids are going to grow up on their own. God, it's just stunning. It's true. Maglin had a formation aspect to their um, program based on the Benedictine model, and it was a common life. There, there were some things in the program that just were not good, just not healthy. But the, when you weigh them, I mean, I, I, all I can do is feel gratitude for everything they'd given me because it was so different. John was largely responsible for that. He and another guy founded it. They, they split over differences and went their separate ways. But anyway, I, I, I taught there for a number of years. And Where was Mag New Hampshire. Oh, New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we, we remained close friends. Um, after he was moved out, um, I wrote a couple of proposals critiquing the program, and it was not easy for the program to hear those proposals and finally they didn't renew my contract and I was out and anyway we remain close friends I, I'm just so genuinely thankful for having had him in my life he was raised Catholic absolutely devoted to Christ wanted the school to do something different you know when he looked at higher education he just passed a couple of days ago so when I include him in my prayers this morning, I would ask, I would be grateful for all of you if you would just say a prayer for him. His wife, Betty, is left behind. She's a tough woman, and I know she'll be fine, but still, you know, losses are losses. And also, I'm going to pray for Sarah and Royce Ferrar. They just lost their 11-year-old daughter in that four-wheeler accident. Say that again. Sarah and Royce Ferrar. Sarah and Roy. Royce. Sarah and Royce, and their yeah. son's name? Their daughter was Morgan. Morgan. <coughs> yeah, 11 years old. <coughs> Sarah and Royce, help me with the names in our prayer, because I'm not. Oh, yeah, my sister uh, got diagnosed with breast cancer. Gosh. She's uh, having a struggle. What's her name? Uh, uh, Carol. Carol. Sorry, the daughter's name? Morgan. Morgan. 
Okay, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, One thing I asked to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That was from our song this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life and the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass, for your words to us, for Father's homily, for the many ways in which in his own life he struggles to bring you to us in in what I think is a remarkable way at times. Um, Ask a blessing on all of us here in the work that we're doing together. Help us to give ourselves to it always in the spirit that in doing this we're moving closer to you. Hopefully being more open to you, more willing to hear you, listen for you, um, move in response to you, even when it, most especially when it's hard, and even when it puts us at odds um, with people around us, and sometimes even with each other. Help us to stay with you, always to bring you to everything that we do. Just to remain in your presence all this day. I ask a special blessing on um, Carol. Um, Um, help heal her if it will be possible. If not, um, help her to quiet her heart, receive the care uh, that can help her, um, watch over her, protect her. Be with Sarah and Royce um, in this time of um, grief. Receive Megan, or Morgan, sorry, into your kingdom. Um, Wash away her sins, forgive her. Come into the joy um, of being with you and let her parents know, take consolation, be glad um, for that. Um, I offer special thanksgiving for um, the gift that John has been in my own life. Receive him into your kingdom. Um, um, Let him bask in the joy of being finally with you. Um, and I ask a special blessing on all of us this morning in light of um, the gospel reading. Help all of us to be bread, to be multiplied, to help take all of our gifts, whatever they happen to be, for each one of us, and let them multiply. Um, Go out into the world help us not keep these things in, or let our pride, or scrupulosity, or anything, fear of bumbling, or tripping, or seeming stupid, or whatever, would keep us from offering them. Let us offer them foolishly, unselfconsciously, give them away, and let them be multiplied, um, so that we can join you in your work, um, help recover your kingdom, help us all to do this. And we ask this in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. See if I can put some things together. Um, I want to go back to the wind hover start, but I, I, I want to um, 
get clear on the context here and what we're doing, a reminder of what we're doing. <laughs> By the way, I hope you know that I do that as much for myself because a lot of the time, I'm sure you all know, a lot of the time I'm lost. You probably all know that already anyway. But um, I have in the back of my mind this. It's one of the reasons I chose Hopkins instead of going forward with Wordsworth because one of the questions that I asked in the last week when we began Faulkner was, can we find Christ in writing? It was not a small question for me, as you can imagine, because I've been pushing poetry at you now for a year or more. Um, I said last week that we've entered a modern phase with Homer and Virgil and Dante and even Shakespeare, even though Shakespeare's on the threshold of modernity, we still look back to a classical medieval world in which um, God existed and miracles took place. Um, we, we saw that in, in Shakespeare as a modern, you know, with Winter's Tale, with the resurrection of Hermione, a work of art. We're aware that humans move in a world in which God exists. God, the, the divine order is constantly interacting with our order. And we've been seeing that in literature. So the whole point of doing this was to see if literature could help us see the way in which God is involved in our world. In that sense, it was catechetical, even though I don't think of myself as a catechist at all. Um, but, um, and that was still with us in some degree with <coughs> Moby Dick, because all of the characters and so much of the reading that, that's offered in Ishmael's reflections, all of them make us aware that there's something fundamentally mysterious about the whale Moby Dick. Some people see him as God incarnate, and you know, we had all these strange stories, and a lot of them are the sort of stories that we could have laughed off, which is exactly what a lot of people in the modern world do about God. Blow him off, laugh him off. God, are you kidding? Show me. Um, that's got to be even more true for us as Catholics because believing in the real presence in the Eucharist with, this, with the wine and bread, are you kidding me? It's wine and a wafer. To make a claim that that's the real presence, that it's been transformed, on the surface of it has got to seem ridiculous. So, um, and then when we began Faulkner, I, I remember saying the, in the, in the, beginning weeks, that we've entered a world in which for all practical purposes God is understood to be dead. He doesn't exist. Um, if we're looking for Christ, we tend to look for Christ-like actions in human beings. So we still look for Christ in people, Christ as a person. There was something Christ-like in Hermione, in Portia, you know, we can go back. I said there was something Christ-like in Othello and Hamlet, as, even as tragic figures. But we made a change, and I wanted to mark it, that, that when we began Faulkner, the question that I asked is, can we find Christ in his writing? So that we're not just looking for Christ in a person. I'm asking the question whether Christ is present in the way that somebody writes. And I tried to enlarge that a little bit by, by asking another question. Can we find Christ in the words that we use daily throughout a day? 
are there sometimes um, instances when we use words that are contrary to what Christ is asking of us? What's the spirit behind the words we use? Yeah? Remember, Christ is the word. I've been saying this from the beginning. It's the word. Poetry is an analogy to that. All poetry, in some sense, implies an artist, a creator. And we've been searching for him all along, finding him everywhere. And lots of the lyric, one of the reasons for the lyric poems that I've been reading is because they make Christ explicit. He was there in a wind hover, right? There in a little girl who pricked her finger. I mean, we've been seeing poets help us to see things through words. So one of the fundamental questions for me is there's something Faulkner is doing with language that reveals Christ, not just in the characters, but in the language itself. Now I know that seems awfully abstract, but it's a serious question for me, okay? And I wanted to leave it with you guys. To help with that, I chose not to go ahead with Wordsworth, we were gonna read Wordsworth, and went back to Hopkins. Because remember in Hopkins in the wind hover, he sees Christ and the bird. I'll read it, I and mean, I'm just gonna go quickly through it. And I'm gonna read Kingfisher's Catch Fire again, just to remind you. Um, as a way of pointing to the Dutch, the wreck of the Dutchland. Because there, in that poem, which I said is one of the most difficult poems in the, in the English language for sure, he's writing. And in the act of writing, as an artist, in the act of creating, something happens to him. I don't want to give it away, but something happens. And it's in relationship to writing, an art. And by the way, um, I, I hope you, are, you probably won't remember this, but when we were doing this earlier at some point when I was talking about poetry, poesis, the word poesis, poesis, from the Greek, to make. From Plato's The Symposium, I went over this before, poesis, Plato, is different from techne, technology, the technical aspect. There is no art, none, no art, that doesn't have both aspects. A musical composer can't bring music into existence without a mastery of the techniques of harmony, music, chords. You know. A painter cannot do her work without having a brush and paints, the technique of whatever, because how can you implement a vision if you don't have the technical mastery of your medium, your tools, what you do? So every work, in, every work of art implies both. Um, poesis means, in Plato, to bring something into existence that didn't, bring, that didn't exist before but it had this special meaning in the, in the symposium. He called it begetting poesis, a begetting upon the beautiful. That the artist is struck by the beauty of something so much that that's what radiates in a person's soul and, and has to make an image of it, to create it. And I think I've said this before, I put this together all for you before. In terms of the Trinity, Christ is often thought as the beautiful. The beautiful, why? Because he's the image of the Father. In me you see the Father. So imagine, I mean, if we could make a leap here, another leap of abstraction, I keep you guys in this realm of abstractions. 
you could take, if we could take a leap for a moment, imagine the father conceiving of himself, knowing himself. The act of knowing himself begets the son. He's begotten, not made, right? The father's concept of himself is the image of himself, the son. So the son has always been thought of as the image of the father, the idea of the father, or the beautiful, the source of all beauty. He was the word. He made creation. The beauty of creation all goes back to him. When the artist creates, Christ is somewhere behind that. Okay, so um, where was I going? Now I am, now I am lost. Um, I wanted to I wanted to do Hopkins um, because I wanted to remind everybody of um, the creative act, the act of writing, and this question of whether we can find Christ in in writing. Um, it actually, I mean. So, so all of this is by way of setting up this poem. The other thing in connection that I need to bring these two things together, the, the act of writing, if Christ is present in writing. The other side of this is the sense of a self, a subject. Um, the, and it's important here because as you, as you know well, I think by now, poetry always helps us to take us inside of another. One of the kinds of knowledge that's peculiar to poetry, St. Thomas calls knowledge by connaturality. 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 Knowledge by sympathy. It's a knowledge by inclination to move out towards another. But poetry always helps us to move towards another and into that other, to know the other from the inside. And the reason I'm raising this now is because it seems to me one of the things that Faulkner is doing is that he helps us to move into his characters in a way that's almost unheard of in literature. When we start Sound of the Fury, we're gonna go inside of an idiot. Who's ever done that? I mean, we can stay outside of idiots all of our life condemning them, saying, what an idiot, you know? Or, or, feel, or feel like we have nothing in common with an idiot because we've got good sense, we're normal. Faulkner took us inside of writer in, Pantaloons. We know that man from the inside in a way the sheriff and his wife in their stupid insensitivity don't. We're able to go inside of a black man at a moment of the worst grief and be with him. We're inside of him. So this whole question of finding Christ in writing is not a small one to me. When we go into the interior, how does he do that? So we enter into writer at, at, this, at this period of Overwhelming grief, you know. He did it with Lucas, with all the stupid things he did, and the proud, arrogant, but you're, we're inside that man. And he, he never judges them, never. We don't get an unkind word. If we're, if we're gonna judge, we're gonna judge him ourselves. We're inside of Lucas when he does all of these stupid things. The divining almost breaks up his marriage. It leads Molly to come to Edmonds and say, I want a voice, I want a voice. Um, so Faulkner over and over again takes us inside these people so that we get to know them as another self, so that it's not an object. We don't know another as an object, subject, object, because that's what we tend to do. We get into them and stand with them as another self, exactly as the way God does. Because, I'm gonna read this, 
to God, we are not objects. Even if the way we tend to know each other is as objects, we objectify each other, we look at each other as objects, that's the way we go through the world. A lot of our, I, I'm assuming you all know how true this is. I think it's a sad thing for all of us. It's one of the marks of our tragedy. One of the things I'm going to claim about Fock is he's taking us back in there in a way that takes us back to Eden. That we know another as another. We behold. We don't know, we don't know people as objects, which is the way we tend to know each other all the time. We actually enter into another and become one with them. So art helps us overcome this subject-object dichotomy. Instead of looking at things as abstractions, as objects, we enter into that life. Okay. So I just wanted to put that out as a way into Faulkner, but um, I've, I've chosen the poetry that we're reading right now because in some ways it's doing the same thing, so it's helping. Okay. Is that clear? Yes. Is that clear? That is okay. Okay. Um, just quickly then, let me, I know this is a long, <laughs> a long setup for Faulkner, but um, uh-oh, here. You know, often at Mass we hear, we, we get readings from Psalms. <coughs> Who's that coming in late? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to embarrass you, but... But... <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Linda. Hi. I'm glad to see you. I hope you don't mind me giving you a bad time. Genuinely glad to see you. No, gen genuinely, genuinely. Um, she left. She's not going to talk to me anymore. Is she coming back? periodically hear readings from Psalms, you know, and some other readings from the Old Testament, and in a couple of places, I think, in the New Testament, in which God is, um, is described in terms of raining down on the good and the evil both. I want to hold that up today, um, because we're going into stories um, in which we enter into others. And I think it's good to be reminded that God asks us t um, to, to be reminded that he, he loves. God is love. So his love is there for everybody. You know, it's offered freely. When Christ was on the cross, he didn't just confine his love to the good people and not the sinners. As a matter of fact, he came for the sinners. So and one of his commandments to us was to love our enemies. We have to love enemies. And it's much easier to look at a person as an object and dismiss him, get him out of our life. Christ asks us not to do that. He asks us to love our enemies. How do we do that if we can't enter into another, an enemy, and see the good in that person the way God would? Okay? So he rains down on the good and, and the bad. 
This is from Matthew. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He gives his goodness, his bounty everywhere, not just to those who, for whom it's convenient for him. Sends down rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Do not even tax collectors do the same. So, um, <clears throat> this whole thing of entering into the self of another. So, um, I, I don't, I don't, well, I'm going to read the Windhover again, even though I've read it before. So, if, if, if you haven't pulled it out, if you don't, don't bother about it. Just listen, because you'll enjoy hearing it, I hope. The Windhover to Christ our Lord. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappled dawn, drawn falcon, and his riding of the rolling level underneath him, steady air. You can, in the automatopoeia, you can hear the bird. You can hear him in the sound. That's the bird moving through the sky. In his riding of the rolling level underneath him, steady air, and striding high there, how he rung upon the rain of a wimpling wing. A wimpling, a wimple, a nun's... Here the religious, you know, the dauphin, the wimpling wing, in his ecstasy, then off, off forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend, the hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind, my heart in hiding stirred for a bird. You can feel that moment, he's almost overwhelmed as his heart goes out watching this bird, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing, exclamation point. Brute beauty and valor and act, oh hair, air, pride, plume, here, buckle. Remember that it stops the first line, that's unheard. Why? Because he wants that whole action to suddenly stop. Because at that moment he sees the, the word, the wind hover, um, master the wind, the, he, his wings hold him in the wind, it's a, a moment of mastery, and then suddenly, buckle means also not just gathering things together the way a buckle does holding, but it means collapsing, breaking. The bird can only hold it for a second, and then the wings collapse. And brute beauty and valor and act, O air, pride, plume, here, buckle. And the fire that breaks from thee then, a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O my chevalier. It's Christ, my chevalier, my hero my champion. No wonder of it. This is the amazing line. No wonder. <laughs> no wonder. He's there everywhere. Do we see him? There's no wonder in this. He's there. If we only open the There's no wonder in this. It's, it's in front of us all the time. How often do we see it? No wonder of it. Sheer plod makes plow down silly and shine. A farmer, when he's working the earth, turns that gucky clay into fine cillion. A light radiates. A farmer does that. How much are any of us doing that all day long without even doing it? Is a farmer aware that when he's doing it? No. How, how, I mean, I'm saying this because it, it seems to be, without our knowing it, something of what we're doing all day long in our work, if we take it serious, is doing it, even if we never see it. Who's the one who sees it? <laughs> the poets, generally. They help us to see it. So, so much of what goes on in our ordinary lives when we're plowing, and probably when we get most discouraged, he's plowing earth. 
You know, is he saying, I don't have a job in a newspaper, I'm not in Hollywood, nobody sees me. He's just doing his job. And out of it comes the cillion. Now, how much of our ordinary days pass when we're working hard at something and get discouraged? Because we don't see it. Just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. No wonder of it. Sheer plod, sheer plod makes plow down cillion shine and blue bleak embers. Ah, my dear. Blue beak, remember when a fire first begins, it's raging. The fire is so great that you almost, you don't see the embers. But then it dies out, and in that moment of dying out, you've got those beautiful embers and the vermilion radiance that comes from the fire. Makes plow down cillion shine and blue bleak, blue bleak embers. Ah, my dear. Fall, gall themselves, gall themselves and gash gold vermilion. It's exactly at that moment when the fire goes out, just like that moment when the farmer produces cillion, that they are participating in the crucifixion even if they don't know it. The fire has no awareness, but there's an image of it. So Hopkins is showing us that, that Christ is everywhere, in a bird, in a f the farmer working, in a fire, in a fire going out. Um, this is his, the other poem that I gave you on the back side of that same sheet. As kingfishers catch fire, what he's doing now is showing that not only is Christ present everywhere in creation, but everything in creation has a self. How can it not be? Saint, by the way, this is straight from St. Thomas. St. Thomas's word for it in Latin was suppositum. Excuse me, suppositum. It only is an object be because we objectify it with our mind. But everything in creation, every single tree, every single bird, everything that exists is a subject in its own right. It has its own being, right? I think women, I've said this before, I think women are much closer to this, generally speaking, than men. When I think about Doc um, doing flour, or even cooking, when, you know, but Bev, when she makes her, um, Thing. Friday morning cookies thing. When Suzanne is working with flowers, when she and she gardens, there's not a question in my mind that those flowers have a self. Otherwise, why would she take the care that she does? Um, scrupulous isn't the conscientious is, you know. There's a care. It's knowledge by connaturality, by sympathy. It's an inclination towards something. It's like the heart going out for something. You feel it. Um, I think there's a danger to that heart, but, but it's also a great gift to that inclination. I've said before, poetry is the mode by which we do that. It helps us, it helps develop those powers of sympathy, of connaturality to move out towards a thing. So in this poem, he's showing that each thing has a self. It is a self on its own. Everything. How can it not be? So he's helping us to get past that tendency to objectify things, to see things. The modern sciences have so reinforced this. I, I, I sometimes wonder, you know, how well people in psychology or therapy, you know, it's so easy to see another as an object. It's much harder to love another person and know him that way. Poetry is the one mode that both helps us to know another and to enter into that other in love. It's, I mean, that's the kind of knowledge it gives us. 
to get past this dichotomy. So, as kingfishers catch fire. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. Kingfishers, it's a bird or a fish. Kingfisher, is it a bird? Kingfishers catch fire. They, they catch the glint. That's what they do. Then you suddenly see them. Dragonflies draw flame. Same. They, you can see a flame coming out of them. So he's identifying each thing by, its, by what's peculiar to it as a thing. Stones going down a well are announcing, naming themselves as they go down. As kingfishers, as kingfishers catch fire, as dragonflies draw fire, as tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow swung, find tongues to fling out broad its name. You know in a bell clapper, it, it, it's called a tongue, and it hits the thing. So the tongue, Hobbins, <laughs> are you playing with, is speaking. So he's, he's looking at each thing and, and showing how it names itself in the act of being what it is. By the way, St. Thomas would have said the same. Think about this for a second. Each thing in nature predicates itself, right? A thing does something. Not, there's nothing inert in nature. Everything in nature, dirt is alive and organic in some way or it wouldn't be dirt. Each thing has a predication. It's being what it is. We never name it, but that's what goes on. Hopkins is naming it. There's nothing, there's nothing going on that doesn't speak its name in what it does. A stone, a bell, a bird. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Deals out that being indoors, each one dwells, sells, goes itself. Myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. That's what each thing in nature does. It's speaking itself. We won't see that if we don't get past this subject-object dichotomy. Poetry helps do that. Um, deals out that being indoors, each one dwells, sells, goes itself, myself, it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more. The just man justices keeps grace. It keeps all his goings graces acts in God's eye, in what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. We're being helped to see Christ in each person. Do we see him? Are we being Christ ourselves? Are we bringing him? To what we do. Okay. Now, um, this is a much later gun. This is all by way of getting us to the wreck of the Dutchland and <laughs> Faulkner. Um, let me just pick up and read the last four. You have to really hit it hard, Tom. It's okay. push it. Oh. Yeah. Ooh. God, we almost lost it. <laughs> I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose either one of you here. Um, I'm just going to, because we're, we're later, I'm too late on this, but um, I want to finish the last couple of stanzas of the first part. 
And I'll, I'll go over it again next week because I won't take so long with this with this in, with this introduction. Um, um, we read up through six in the wreck of the digital, and I'll pick up from seven. Remember, Hopkins is describing his own personal crisis, that he's aware of himself in relation to God and feels himself overmastered by him, that he is the master of the sea, the earth. Remember, he's got in his mind the death of these five nuns, and he was so moved, so saddened by the, um, by the news of it that he sat down to write this poem. And it's a struggle on his part to find meaning in suffering. So at the center of this poem is this whole mystery, this paradox of, paradox of suffering. His faith that no matter where suffering goes on, Christ is always there. If somebody had the faith to know that. Even if he couldn't see through the darkness, all he felt was the pain, he knows. So the, the first part is his placing himself in that context. And he, in the, in the um, stanza five, he used the word stress in stress. Remember I told you that's an expression of God's, God's energy holding everything in being. So he's focusing on this word stress. And then in six he says, not out of his bliss springs the stress felt, nor first from heaven, and few know this, swings the stroke dealt. Stroke and a stress that stars and storms deliver, that guilt is hushed by, Hearts are flushed by and melt, but it rides time like riding a river. Um, hope, keep in mind five and six together. I kiss my hand to the stars, lovely asunder, starlight, wafting him out of it. Um, and then in six, not out of his bliss springs the stress felt. Not out of his bliss. How easy is it for us to look abstractly the way the pagans must have done, and even non-Christians, how easy is it to look at heaven and the bliss of heaven and think everything's okay? Now hold on to that just for a second. Not out of his bliss springs the stress fell. Because it, what he's talking about is not what happens when we contemplate heaven as an abstraction with all of its bliss because everything in heaven is blissful. It's Christ entering time, God entering time and going to a cross. What did that do for the stress? God's holding everything in existence in a stress. Let Christ come into the world. What I mean, is there anything he did that didn't intensify everything? And at the center of it, the two events that hold Christ together is the incarnation, crucifixion. So any way in which we struggle to become aware of, of God, it's got to hold on to the stresses that our awareness of those two things leave us with. Not out of the bliss springs the stress felt, nor from the heaven, and few notice, swings the stroke dealt. Christ rides it like riding a river. He's outside of time and in it. Um, it dates from the day of his going in Galilee, warm laid grave of a womb life gray. Doc and I were talking about this morning, and she was saying, I, should, I want to move on, otherwise I'd stop it. And she was saying that she thought, um, that that image of the the womb laid grave that when he entered time, we remember this from Eliot's poem, the um, the Magi. That was a that was a death like unlike any other death. That when Christ came into the world, he knew he was going to die. So the grave was always there, it was a part of his life from beginning to end. Warm laid grave of a womb life gray, the, the fact that he was concealed. 
um, for the 30 years until he comes out to do his ministry. And the images of wombs there are, you know, a, a, a warm laid grave, a womb life grave, manger, maiden's knee, the dents in the driven passion, the frightful sweat, thence the discharge of it. There it's swelling to be, though felt before, though in high flood yet, what none would have known of it, only the heart being hard at bay. We can believe in God abstractly. It's another thing to identify with Christ, to be one with him. Um, none would have known it. How could, we, could anybody before Christianity have known what it would have meant to be Christ and to enter into his life, to go to the crucifixion, to go through the passion with him, and the renewed life afterwards? Um, what none would have known of it, only the heart being hard at bay. It's only in the moments of suffering that we, sadly, that we tend to turn to him and then know him on the cross. It gives meaning to our own suffering. Only the heart being at heart at bay is out with it. Oh, we lash with the best or worst word last. How a lush cap plush cap slew, will mouth to the flesh burst, gush, flush the man. It's like a plum when it gushes when you eat it, except that's what happens to the heart in these moments of anguish. But there's Christ in it, like a fruit, you know, giving life when our heart breaks, is crushed. Will mouth to the flesh burst, gush, flush the man, the bean with it, sour or sweet, brim to a flash full, hither then at last or first, to hero of Calvary, Christ. And notice how he separates that. He's talking about Christ as a person and Christ's feet. And he makes them both one, as if Christ's identity were with his feet. That's where we go. Is that clear? Look at, you've seen the punctuation, what he does with the punctuation there? That comma separates Christ as a person from its possessive, his feet. So he makes them one. He does things like that all the time. Never ask if meaning it, wanting it, warned of it, men go. Be adored among men, God, three-numbered form. Ring thy rebel, dogged in den. We hide in these dens. We go to the darkness and hide and are dogged. We don't want to be bothered with God um, or go to the cross. Um, ring thy rebel, dogged in den, man's malice with wrecking and storm. Beat us up. <laughs> Help us to come to ourselves. Beyond saying sweet, beyond telling of tongue, thou art lightning in love. Notice how he keeps bringing contraries together constantly, constantly in this poem. Thou art lightning and love. I found it a winter and warm. Both, always. Not just, not one or the other, not either or, always, both. Father and fondler of heart thou hast wrung. Hast thy dark descending and most art merciful then. When he strikes us most, he's showing us his greatest mercy. By the way, we're going to see this image a little bit later when we get to the second half of the poem and he describes the storm. One of the sailors will be dangling from the crossbar and his description is dandling. <laughs> you know, Matt, this guy's dying. I mean, how, how much worse? I mean, the only thing worse is the crucifixion because God's on the cross, not a man. It's, can, there's nothing worse except that. 
describes this man as dandling, as if the father is dandling him. You know, that, that we have to sh- get free ourselves from these categories and hold these two things together, always. Father and fondler of heart thou hast wrung, hast thy dark descending, and most art merciful then. With an anvil ding. I mean, think of the harsh imagery, the weather, a, a forge as if we're being beaten out. With an anvil ding, and with fire in him forge thy will, or rather, rather than stealing as spirit through him, Spring. melt him, but master him still. Spring. Cr- huh? Spring. S- sorry, what? Stealing as spring through him, melt him, but master him still. Whether at once, as once at a crash, Paul, or as Austin, a lingering out sweet skill. Paul, remember, was overwhelmed with that flash of lightning on the road to Emmaus, wasn't it, the, the, when, when he had the vision of Christ? That's my only recollection of the spirit ever being violent. The spirit is always reticent, quiet. That's the only moment I know where, he, where we have an image of the Spirit overwhelming man violently. For Paul, it's violent. For Austin, St. Augustine, as you know, it's slow, not yet God. I can't, what's that famous verse? You know, he's, he, his eros, his lusts are so great to Carthage I came, you know, with all of his lusts. He said he wanted Christ, but not yet. I can't remember that. You know, but because he was... Was that it? Yeah. He, he could not overcome his lust. He was a very passionate man. So he wanted God and asked for God, but said, make me holy, but not yet. Uh, so he's showing that, that the Spirit can do everything. In one instance with Paul, he's instantaneous and violent. You know, Paul was blinded. With St. Augustine, it was gradual. A lingering out sweet skill. Make mercy in all of us. Out of us all, mastery, but be adored, but be adored king. No matter what happens, no matter how violent, we know that God's mercy is working on us to make us better. And when things get tough, to always remember to adore him, uh, Christ, because that's what Christ did. So, yes, yeah. Say, say again, Linda, I didn't have, say which one? Yeah. Look at the comma. The comma is after the noun, but he makes it a possessive with the apostrophe S, right? So it's, it's not Christ noun, it's Christ, an adjective modifying feet, his feet. His, you could say his feet. Well, what he does is bring a noun and a possessive, his, yes. and makes them one, so that we are to identify Christ as Christ, but also Christ with his feet. So, um, hither then, last or first, to hero of Calvary, Christ's feet. Never ask if meaning it, wanting it, warned of it, men go. We go to the feet of Christ. Is that? That comma is very much out of place. No, 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 it's deliberate. That's what I'm saying. Well, this, what he's doing is using punctuation in a condensed way to show that Christ the person and his feet are the same. 
another way to put it is that we're going to his feet, but knowing that his feet are him. By the way, remember, I mean, the, one of the most important moments in Christ's life is the washing of the feet. He right. said, the last night, he said, to, and Peter said, I'm not going to do it. He said, if you don't wash my feet, I will have nothing to do with you. We are asked to do everything in humility and to bring that spirit of humility in service, in love, humbling in what we do with each other. You want to see something funny? Here, I'm going to show you something. I wasn't planning to do this. Turn to the loss of the Eurydice. What he does with language is sort of amazing. It's the first page of that. It's the, you know, on the, on the wreck of the Dutch land, it's the very first page. Do you have it? The Eurydice? Take a look. The, the poem unfolds by couplets. You all know rhyming couplets. Look at the first stanza. Lord, board, unfallen. Right? Stroke, oak, downs, burial. I'll come to that, but on, billion, measured, treasure. Do you see? It's rhyming couplets. Yeah? Look at stanza uh, lines 21, 24. And you are a liar, O blue March day, bright sun lance fire in the heavenly bay. But what black Boreas wrecked her? He came equipped, deadly electric. Day bay, he electric? Where's the rhyme? Wrecked. Hmm? Mm -mm. Well, wrecked her, but electric. But no, the end of the line is he electric. No, no, there's no. Wait, the end, the end, the end rhymes don't rhyme. They don't. Except, listen, what's the first letter of the fourth line? So put heek, heek aim, and what do you have? It's a it's it's what it's what in poetry is called a rove over. Are you all seeing that? Uh-huh. He put 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 H E C from came and what do you have? Hick. That is that is white. Look, you you can't just you can't just see it on the page. You have to hear the sounds and break the sounds into their increments. No, it's too, it's, I mean, no, you would never, you'd say, you read, remember, you always read poetry rhetorical, the way you would. But how would someone, like, I'm reading it. I you won't hear it. You won't hear it. Fog, this is, it, Faulkner's bearing, I mean, sorry, um, Hopkins is bearing it. Just, I'm just showing you. What he did with sound, what he did with poetry and stresses and rhythms was nothing short of extraordinary. It's just, he did amazing, amazing things. Like that comma after Christ. <laughs> so I, so I'm not going to help you, am I? <laughs> Linda, I, I asked a favor of Tom. To, don't let him go today without asking him what I, I don't want to do it in class, but tell him not to forget. We have no time to do Faulkner. Yet. Okay, let's do Faulkner with whatever. Actually, here's the... 
here before we, I, I meant to read this. This whole notion of self that I tried to give some emphasis to this morning. Jacques Maritain calls subjectivity the self. Um, he calls it an infinite abyss. An infinite abyss. If any of us have ever looked inside of ourselves, we know how hard it is to get to the bottom of it. Can we ever get to the bottom of it? Aristotle said, the soul is in a way all things. We can take all things into us. Is there anything in nature like that? Black hole. Hmm? <laughs> Black hole. <laughs> you asked. <laughs> when, when am I going to learn? <laughs> God, God, are you dear? You gotta love him. You gotta love him. Um, so we equate infinite abyss with soul. Or yeah, the self. self. Yeah, self. I'm going there. Oh. So remember, Aristotle said the soul is in a way all things. You know that everything in nature, in some way, works by assimilation. Plants assimilate everything we assimilate but because we have an intellectual soul we can take in the forms of things we can't take in matter we take in their forms whatever form of stone a form of a tree we can so we know those things oh thank you god bless her soul oh are we going to get something going here i don't think so oh You even begin to imagine what, a, what it is for me. <laughs> oh, God. Um, the soul is, in a way, all things. So it's an infinite abyss. It's not, it's inconceptualizable. We can't conceive of the soul. It's infinite in its nature. That's St. Thomas. That's Maritain following Thomas. Um, um, and the reason I wanted to mention it is, it's a, is to try to flesh out this notion of what happens in this subject-object subject economy. It gets reinforced with Descartes and all modern philosophies. Because Descartes said, I think, therefore, am. He made himself as a thinking subject the, the ground of being. I think, therefore, I am, as if thinking were the basis of everything. And he removes himself from his senses. That's the divorce of the modern world. We separate our minds from our bodies. That's the great dichotomy that, that we've inherited. Um, Maritain's talking about the self in its nature and says that it's inconceptualizable. We can't grasp it. We can't know it through concepts. The only way that we can know it is through mystical knowledge in being united with the thing known or in poetic knowledge. Because poetic knowledge is the only way into that interior. Okay? And he says this, um, Sartre, the French philosopher, he said, quoting, referring to Sartre, to be known as object, to be known to others, to see oneself in the eyes of one's neighbor, here Sartre is right, is to be severed from oneself and wounded in one's identity. This has been with us from the beginning, excuse me, from the Iliad the way men treat each other as objects, and women, the way women do the same thing with men. 
that we treat each other as objects. And in that sense, we can never do anything but wound each other, to suffer from each other. Because so long as we continue to see each other that way, we will never know the other as a self from inside that person. To be known as object, to be known to others, to see oneself in the eyes of one's neighbor is to be severed from oneself and wounded because we become an object in the way that we know ourselves. To be severed from oneself and wounded in one's identity, it is to be always unjustly known whether the he whom they condemn, because remember, the he is an object, it's he or she, right, another. It's not I, we don't know the other is an I. It's a he, he did this, he did this, she did that. Yeah. Um, it's always to be unjustly known whether the he whom they see condemns the I or whether as occurs more rarely the he does honor to the I the tribunal is a masquerade where the accused stands accoutred in a travesty of himself and it delivers his acts to be weighed in the balance the more the judges stray from the crude outward criteria with which with which they formerly contented themselves and strive to take account of degrees of inner responsibility. You know, in a, in a trial, I mean, you, you get everybody, I think it's when it, you know, it's, it always, I mean, you, we've, got to, we've got to keep justice alive. We can't let justice go. But why does Christ at some point say, free the prisoners? You know, Elijah, a day will come. Because in some sense, there's something always in another person that we miss, even in a court of law, with all of our efforts to try to do justice somebody, we're still going to miss somebody. We don't know them inside. Otherwise, why would Christ say, free the prisoners? That day will come. Level the roads. You know, bring down the mountains. Raise the valleys. Free the prisoners. The more the judges stray from the crude outward criteria with which they formerly they contented themselves and strive to take account of degrees of inner responsibility, the more they reveal that the truth of him who they judge remains unknowable to human justice. Interrogated by such a tribunal, Jesus owed it to himself to remain silent. What, what would it have availed him to argue? What would they have heard? Nothing, yeah? What did they, I mean, they, is there any evidence of, of a whole people not knowing what was in front of them? Otherwise, why would they have condemned him? They couldn't have been farther away from knowing who he was from that perspective of an eye. I'm known to God. He knows all of me, me as subject. I am present to him in my subjectivity itself. He has no need to objectize me in order to know me. God doesn't look at us as objects. He's a God of love. He's absolutely one, united. He has no need to objectize me in order to know me. Then, and in this unique instance, man is known not as object, but as subject in all of the depth and all of the, necess all the recesses of subjectivity. Only God knows me in this wise. To him alone I am uncovered. We know that because we go to confession. Why do we unclothe ourselves there to reveal ourselves to say, this is who I am? We're always, there's some part of us others don't know. Only God knows me in this wise. To him alone I am uncovered. I am not uncovered to myself. Because we know that there are things about ourselves we don't know. Only God knows them. 
The more I know of my subjectivity, the more it remains obscure to me. If I were not known to God, no one would know me. No one would know me in my truth, in my own existence. No one would know me, me, as subject. If I were not known to God, no one would know me. Remember, I mean, connect this with the cave for a minute. Remember in the cave, everybody's in the cave. It's only when you come out. It's only God that knows us from the inside. That's that too often we know each other as objects. It's only God. If, if he didn't know each one of us as me, how could we be anything but isolated? Because we would not be known. We struggle in our marriages, no? To try to come, to try to become one, to know the other as a subject. So without God, how do we do that? Okay? So this is sort of a, just a, a way of moving forward on our work on poetry, what it does. And it's a way of, of, for me to try to move towards Faulkner as we are dealing with a writer who takes us inside of characters to know them from the inside. Um, was that Sartre? Sorry? Who, who wrote it's, it's a collection of, it's, actually it's wonderful, it's called um, Challenges and Renewals. By, it's a collection of pieces from a variety of books that Maritain. Maritain, I think, is, is, is one of, of one of the few greatest men in the 20th century, a philosopher. He and um, um, Etienne Gilson responded to Pope Leo's call to recover philosophy at the beginning of the century. And the two of them did that by going back to St. Thomas. And so they're probably the two greatest Thomists in the 20th century. The, the work they've done is it's just, just extraordinary. Artists would love, the, one of the works he did is called um, Creative Intuition in Art and Poetry. It's one of the most remarkable books on poetry. But he's written on science, nature, politics, Freud. And there's nothing he hasn't turned his mind on. Anyway, there's this. Time to go. <laughs> I need to take a breath. Can we take two minutes and um, before we start Faulkner? Sorry, this took so long, but this whole question, remember, for me, had to do with this question: Can we? We've been, we've been, we set out together to see if we could find Christ, where ordinarily we don't find him. Remember, in the in the ancient epics, we saw him in the Prusia, the second coming, the return of the king. It was in a person. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. We saw him in Dante. When Dante comes to the top of purgatory and he's crowned, he's made um, king, prophet, priest. Priest, prophet, king, right, when he's crowned. Remember, because he's, he's overcome his earthly sins, he's ready to go into heaven. He's, he's crowned in mitre, and now I, I crown in mitre you priest, prophet, king. That's what all of us are supposed to be. He's crowned king. It's the return of the king. It's not Achilles and Odysseus and Aeneas in their glory. It's this humble guy who's, who who's finishes this journey to come back to give it to us. It's like the Jonah story, the prophet. He's returning. But at that moment, it's the return of the king. He's come to himself. He's come into his own again. So we've been seeing Christ in people, but in, and all along I've been trying to read poems where we... You know, the little girl getting pricked or a bird or... But now when we enter the modern world, we're entering a world that um, denies God, 
Um, if it denies God, it's going to deny Christ. So one of the questions I'd like to ask is, can we find him in artwork? Can we find him in writing? Can we find him here? One of the things I suggested when we met last week is, if, if Hollywood had gotten a hold of the uh, Lucas Molly story, you know, he, 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 <laughs> he wants to set George Wilkham up to send him to the penitentiary to get him out of the way so he can sell his own bootleg liquor. You know, he, 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 he dismantles his own still so nobody will find it. And then he goes to Edmonds to inform on George and he also wants to get George out of the way because he doesn't want to marry Nat. I mean, there's nothing good about Lucas. He's just, and yet he's a comic. I mean, I don't know about, I'm assuming you guys all enjoyed him when we were, the next thing he does is he comes across that coin and he becomes obsessed with finding, he's convinced the treasure's there. He gets screwed by that machine the guy who the salesman, mm -hmm. and then turns the tables on him and gets him to to buy it back, and then rents it to him every night, so he's making a fortune off of him, and he almost ruins his marriage. You know, and then and then at the end, Molly says, "I want a divorce," and she and then she takes that machine and almost kills herself. They have to go hunting and find her, almost dead. They go to court, and finally Lucas gets himself together and says, "We don't want a divorce." And then as they, you know, they go outside the courtroom, he says, wait a minute, and Edmonds, who's furious with him, I mean, he has no good words to say to Lucas at all. If you remember the past, I think we read it together. He has nothing good to say. I mean, he can't be angry enough at him. He's so furious that he's done this to his life, his marriage. Edmonds says, get in the car, and they're ready to go, and Lucas says, wait a minute. He doesn't bother. I mean, Lucas, has, <laughs> he doesn't care about it. He goes to the store, and then he comes back two minutes later with a bag of candy, and he says, here, you don't have any teeth anymore, but you can gum on. You can gum on this. How would Hollywood treat that? I mean, the the, the pro proposition I put to you: if Hollywood had treated that, it would have either ended cynically or sentimentally. Everything would have been sweet. That's not the way Faulkner does it. Where is Christ more present when nothing ends well or everything is sentimentalized and made okay? It's generally not where we find Christ. You know, so my suggestion was that he, what he does is amazing, and and it's important to learn to see that because it's a way of understanding art, where we can go <coughs> bad on either extreme. And Faulkner manages to do his art in a way that takes us into these human lives. He doesn't make judgments, and yet he reveals these people in such a way that I I can say we almost love them. I mean, when Suzanne and I watch movies together, it's it's probably a not probably it's probably a I say pro it's probably as close to a vice or an addiction as or in my life. I mean, I in the evenings I watch movies because I you know I, I'm writing all day long and want to get away from books. Um, when I ask her if she what she thought about it, her, her instinctive response is almost I like the characters, and that can be you know I mean they can be all. It's not that Lucas is particularly admirable in anything he does, but how can you not love that guy when you come out of him? He's a, you know, he's so human and writer. He's going to get strung up. He's going to be, he's going to be crucified. He's going to be killed. How is it possible not to like that man when you know he's being overwhelmed with his grief? And the and the white sheriff, the couple have no clue. So what Faulkner. Can we find Christ in his writing, in the way that he treats care, in what he does with his art? So that's one of the 
questions that I'm throwing out to, to um, probably complicate things more than I should, but... I have a philosophical question. Big surprise. We're <laughs> <laughs> talking about the, the infinite nature of the soul. And, and so the, the question is, well, if, if, if our soul is God within us, with the Holy Spirit, and God is infinite, then are we really all part of a collective through our souls? And if we weren't so busy objectifying each other, we could probably sense that. That's a, I mean, again, it's like, your questions are always so good. Um, well, you brought it on. I was sitting here. <laughs> I, 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 oh, I, stop blaming. Don't, stop pointing. <laughs> Don't turn me into an object here now. <laughs> I, I, I just always thought of a soul as kind of an individual thing. Yeah. But maybe it's not. Well, wait, let me answer, because I thought, I thought the way you put it was really good, and, and it, it seems to me there's two things to be said about it from our faith that, that, that answers it that puts away the, the reservation you've got behind your question. In Buddhism, it, everybody merges into a collective body. So the individual identity disappears. Because in Buddhism, the, there's a belief that anything particular that involves a particular choice is evil. So the ultimate end for a Buddhist is this collective identity in which you, you're, you are absorbed into this collective and you lose your individual identity. One of the great heresies in the Middle Age came from Averroes, uh, who, who believed that we had this common intellectual thing in common. And Thomas answered it because he saw that as a threat to our individual identity, because we believe that each person, each person is made in the image of God individually. But it's interesting that you put it that way. I, 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 I don't know that I'd say God is within us, but I'd say he made us with a soul that is capable of being all things, taking all things in to us. So we, we can actually have a notion of infinity, you know, that God, or eternity, we say God is eternal. But we also have this sense of ourselves as being a part of a body, the mystical body, that Christ is the head, and we are part of, we're the brand, you know, he's the, so in our belief, we actually bring to things our individual nature and our identity with each other, the, the way we're called to love one another, to be a part of a body together. So, um, I don't know if that answers your question, but it seems to me the way you put it brought both of those things together, even if you, know, you didn't resolve them. Our, they're resolved in our church, they're resolved in our belief. We believe that each individual soul is important. Free will and what we do with our choices is important. That one, I mean, remember the Divine Comedy, that when Dante goes into the heavens, um, each person um, is there according to the value of his life. I mean, all, remember, remember uh, Picardus, when Dante said, why aren't you with everybody else? And, she, you know, she was there as a way of showing her weakness. She wasn't any less happy Everybody in heaven, heaven is perfectly happy in perfect harmony with each other, even though there are differences that reflect the choices that they made in life, what they did. So they're a part of a body, they're together, but they're distinct individual souls, too. Maybe it's kind of like your children all have a piece of you in your DNA, so that part of you is in them. 
but they're still a unique individual, but they're still you. You know, so maybe it's kind of like that brings us together. We all have a part, not a part of God, but, you know, we're made in God's likeness. So that joins us, but we have our unique side as well, kind of like our own children. Well, the, the, I mean, the, the, the only thing that makes me uncomfortable about that is the DNA is a, we think of it as a physical property, even if it's not. I mean, it's a, it's a hypothetical or a concept. Right. Love is unitive. That even even with our differences, the very nature of love is unitive. It brings people together, but it can't bring together what isn't distinguished. Um, so that's one of the great par- paradoxes at the center of our belief that that each one of us is made in the image of God. It's important to protect that individuality, but we also believe that our love unites us. That it brings us together. We also believe, in light of the reading we've been doing this morning, that the cross, suffering, is in a sense God wrecking us, crushing us, is one of the best expressions of his mercy, helping us to become better, to learn to love. Because without it, we remain separate. I don't know if that answers your question. Good question. Well, there is an answer. It's just... <laughs> okay. Are we ever going to get the Faulkner? What to do? Um, listen, let me do this because we're late. I'm, I'm just going to very quickly summarize Pantaloon and then I want to look at a couple of passages in Old People. Um, Um, a couple of things about both stories. Don, sorry, or Lois, I mean, can one of you close that door? I wanted to read a number of passages from Pantaloon. Did I show you the picture of the clown, the Pantaloon? Did I pass? Okay, you've seen it. Writers, the Pantaloon. He's a clown. Let me just, um, very quickly. The story begins with Ryder heaping dirt on Manny's grave. Um, We know from the story that the two of them were married six months earlier. So it was a recent marriage. We also know that before that he was a, um, I don't know what to call it, a man about town that all the black women in the town brought him food and took care of him because he looked like he would have been a prize. Um, and it didn't mean anything to him. He probably had affairs and uh, did what young men do. Um, but he reached a point where he said, um, I'm done with that. I'm done with that. And he changes and he marries Manny, whom he'd known since they were children. They were married for six months and a week earlier she died. And what we know is that um, a couple of things that are really important. One is his grief overwhelms him. He, he can't, throughout the entire story, no matter what he does, he almost cannot catch his breath. We, we keep getting these images of his breathing is so hard you can almost hear. He cannot stop. And the other thing is he can't stop doing anything because if he stops, he won't know what to do with himself. Um, so um, he... He piles dirt on her, goes home, 
there's that passage. I wanted to read it. I'm not, I'm not going to do it now because I really want to get on. I want to cover some things in uh, old people. When he comes home, he's described as walking over the earth that Manny, whose Manny's had just walked over a week before so that her footprints are still present as he walks over. I mean, there's those little details that make us aware there's nothing he does that doesn't carry her with him. Yeah? Her feet print, her, foot, her, her footprints are in the dust that he's walking on. There's nothing he does that, he, that doesn't take his identity of himself partly from her. That's how much she means to him. Um, he goes home and he sees the dog and he says, uh, you know, this big dog. He loved the dog because it was big. And um, he says, what's I doing here before I went on? And then he sees the dog. The dog comes up to him and then he goes inside the house. And the dog leaves him momentarily, goes to the opening and turns around and starts howling. And it's at that moment that he has the description of Manny's ghost, that she's present. And, and we, we know it because the dog sees her too. And, and the interesting question is, why is it that very often the subhuman world is aware of things that a rational person is not? This is on page 136. Then the dog left him, the light pressure went off his flank, but it stopped just outside the front door where he could see it now and the upfling of its head as the howl began, and then he saw her too. He saw her too. They both see her. She was standing in the kitchen door looking at him. He didn't move. He didn't breathe or speak until he knew his voice would be all right. He had to collect himself to speak to her. His face fixed too, not to alarm her. This is how precious. He doesn't want to lose this. Manny, he said, it's all right. I ain't afraid. Then he took a step towards her, slow, not even raising his hand yet, and stopped. Then he took another step. But this time, as soon as he moved, she begins to fade. Wait, wait, he's, she begins to fade more. Then let me go with you, honey. But she was going. She was going fast now, and suddenly she's gone. There are these constant um, passages in which Faulkner describes inanimate earth, trees, wood, the liquor itself as having a will. If I if I'd, if I'd gotten going earlier, if I'd gotten through the earlier, I, I would read them. I'm going to read them next week because I want you to hear these passages. Because Faulkner's making us aware. Remember, Manny's in the earth. If something you loved is in the earth, how can you not have a lot? Is, is the earth just dirt the way it is for a modern mind? Not in this book. There's nothing in the natural world that Faulkner doesn't bring alive. His descriptions over and over again is as if something's there. Even in the opening... I, I don't want to take time because we've got to do this, but look, even on the opening page, he didn't even falter. He released one hand in mid-stroke and flung it backwards, striking the other across the chest. The one guy says to let it go. Um, Ryder's going to do this. And restored the hand to the moving shovel, flinging the dirt with that effortless fury so that the mound seemed to be rising of its own volition, not built up from above, but thrusting visibly upward out of the earth itself until at last the grave, save for its rawness, resembled any other. As is if something's coming out with the earth. 
we, we'll find this again. I'm going to read them. I'm going to read a number of them when we start. But I want you to be aware of that, that he keeps describing the earth, the physical things, as if something's there. It's not ghosts. It's not animism. It's not pagan. There's something there. We can't just um, minimize it or ignore it or you know, dismiss it. There's something there. The dog and he see the ghost. Um, he even describes it there when he describes um, his response to it. But anyway, he leaves for the night and walks through the evening. He can't stop. And then arrives at the mill very early the next morning. And you know that the men start work. He eats his lunch. He, he garbles and he's wolfing it down. And the men start singing. He doesn't join them. And then there's that moment where he picks up the log. You all, I'm sure you all remember. It's an amazing, it's almost like a Greek statuary moment where he poises and everybody's watching on expectantly, wondering to see if he can actually toss it. And because it's bigger than anything he's ever done before. And he does. So he, something is given in this superhuman energy out of his grief. Um, that night he goes to get the, the whiskey, you remember, and he keeps drinking. Um, he goes home. Um, in several instances, his uncle comes to him with food, and there at um, his uncle and aunt's house, she tells him to turn to God, and he says he won't. Um, he's, um, he, um, he can't do anything, and then he gets angry at her and says, what did he ever do for Manny? So a couple of things to note here. One is, it's a black man. And we know from the story um, the effect that that's had on him as a human being. That something in him, even if he's not conscious of it or reflective about it, sees himself as less than human. And it makes him have to do everything he can to show that he's also a man. When he drinks the liquor, it's in terms of I'm man enough, you're man enough, remember? And then finally, after he, he vomits several times, he says, now, now he says, it's done, done me all the help I needs. I'm all right now. I don't needs no more of it. Turns it away. Interesting thing here. There's several things going on. One is, he's a modern black man. He's raised as a black man in a community in, in which he's seen as less than human. I'll read that in a minute. He's less than human. He... He's an image of what happens to a modern man, I'm gonna make that general, white and black, a modern man, in the absence of any support from religion or marriage. If you take marriage and religion away from a man, what does he have except drink? And even that isn't enough. So he's an image of modern man isolated. No God, you can't turn to God. No marriage, he's lost his wife. What does he have now? So Faulkner's doing everything to show us what happens when those things are taken away, the effect that it has on a human being. Add to that that he's black, it's overwhelming. I mean, it's just, it's overwhelming. Anyway, he, and you know what happens, he goes to the crap game. I want to read a, on page 147. It's when he enters the boiler room in the middle of that paragraph. But it was all right, he was now moving, the jug gone now. And he didn't know the when or where of that either. He didn't know how it left him. He crossed the clearing and entered the boiler shed and went on through it, crossing the junctureless backdrop. Pay attention to that. Crossing the junctureless backdrop of time's trepan. Trepan is a snare. 
a trap. He's, he's entered a place that's junctureless, crossing the junctureless back loop of time's trepan to the door of the tomb. He's entered a new dimension. The only I mean, if somebody wants to add something to this, go ahead. My own, the only way that I can make sense of that is he says, I'm snake-bit and bound to die. He's lost his wife. What does he have to live for? He has nothing more to live for. So in some sense, he's accepted his death. When he crosses that, he knows it's going to be over for him. Does he consciously plan it out? I don't think so. All he knows is he's snake-bit. The poison's not going to affect him. And you know what happens, he goes in and he kills the guy when um, the guy starts to go for his gun. He's been, uh, this is um, Birdsong, the, the mill supervisor. He's been cheating these people for the last 20, 30 years, taking the greater part of their earnings with no care. And as black people, they're expected to go along with it. And that's what they did. Um, so at the center of this story is this radical existential injustice against the blacks, and particularly here, writer. Go back to the um, second, just turn ahead to the second um, chapter of the story. We get the, the a retelling of the events of what happened from the deputy um, recalling the events to his wife. I just want to read a couple of things here. Go to the second section. After it was over, it didn't, remember, oh, yeah, remember that um, he kills the guy and now it's after they've found him hung. So we already know he's dead. After it was over, it didn't take long, they found the prisoner in the following day hanging from the bell rope in a Negro schoolhouse about two miles from the sawmill, and the coroner had pronounced his verdict of death at the hands of a person or persons unknown. Remember that passage I just read a while ago with Sartre? Is he, any, is he anything less than an object in the way that this guy, they don't know the person, they don't, they don't even give a damn, they don't care. At the hands of persons or persons unknown and surrendered, they know exactly who did this. At the hands of person or persons unknown and surrendered the body to its next of kin, all within five minutes, the sheriff's death, and it goes on. Them damn niggers, he said, I swear to Godfrey, it's a wonder we have as little trouble with them as we do because why? Because they ain't human. They look like a man, they walk on their hind legs like a man, they can talk and you can understand them and you think they're understanding you, at least now and then. But when it comes to the normal human feelings and sentiments of human beings, they might just as well be a damn herd of wild buffaloes. Now you take this one today. Now I don't want to go through the whole thing. This reminds me of Melville and the Protestant North. Um, he has no clue of what, th these are presumably Christian respectable white couple. They're seeing everything through a code, a convention. We're back in Melville's New England. And what he does when he says other men would do this, does he grieve, does he do this, does he do that, those are things you expect him to do because everything they see, they see through the eyes of social conventions, which means they don't see him at all. So what we see is Christianity again reduced to a moral code. And all they do is make judgments. Is that clear? I hope, I, do I need to read those passages? You all know them, yeah? You know, ordinary people do this, he, um, you know, does he do that? He could have taken a day off like the way most white, he has nothing good to say because none of those things fit with conventions. 
And what we're seeing is none of those conventions are human at all. They're just conventions. They help us, but they're not the final word on things. So he's revealing more about himself and what he doesn't see than he does about Ryder, particularly when we look at him through our eyes because Faulkner has showed us Ryder from the inside. So what we become aware of is this awful incongruity or discrepancy between the blacks and the black community and one person who's overwhelmed and the white community, this respectable white community. Two things here just quickly. Um, we learn on page 150, it's more of them bird songs than just two or three, the deputy said. There's 42 active votes in that connection. Me and May Mayview taken the poll first and counted them one, but listen. What becomes really important is how important the birdsong influence is for getting elective. And what does that do to the way the law operates? And then he says, um, come straight back to the mill and to the same crap game where the birdsong has been running crooked dice on them to mill niggers for 15. Everybody knows it. The law knows it. When he finally describes going to get Ryder, they go to his house and instead of finding him with a razor and a shotgun ready for fight, he's asleep. They take him, his aunt comes along, this is 152 in my book, it's describing them coming to the house and then taking him away. Panning up the road at a dog trot, wanting to come with us too and made you trying to explain to her, because the aunt wants to come along, what would maybe happen to her too if them bird songs catches Kin catches us before we can get him locked up. Only she's coming anyway, and like Maydew says, her being in the car too might be a good thing if the bird songs did happen to run into us. Because after all, interference with the law can't be condoned even if the bird song connection did carry that beat for Maydew last summer. What do we learn about the police here? Is that clear? What do we learn? Yeah, right. They want her along so that they don't have to oppose the bird song. Is that clear? It's so embarrassing. Is that clear? They want her along so that they don't have to stand up for the law and oppose the bird song because they know they're in office with their help. We get that a number of times from here. And then at the very end, it describes um, Ketchum going up with his chain gang and Ryder. Um, tearing the cot out from the wall, Molly, Molly's in the jail cell with him, tearing the cot up and then actually breaking the door and then this crowd of men ganging up on him to try to catch him. And he keeps saying, I ain't trying to get out, I ain't trying to get out. He doesn't want to escape. He just can't stop, act. he can't stop moving. He can't be still because the grief overwhelms him. He, he can't stop. He just wants to move. So we get this description of bodies you know, thrown into the air and then this at the end. And Ketchum went in and began peeling away niggers until he could see him laying there under the pile of them laughing with tears big as glass marbles running across his face and down past his ears and making a kind of popping sound on the floor like somebody dropping bird eggs, laughing and laughing and saying, it looked like I just can't quit thinking, looked like I just can't quit. What do you think of that? He can't make anything of it. I think if you eat any supper in this house, you'll do it in the next five minutes, his wife said from the dining room. 
I'm going to clear this table and then I'm going to the picture show. Remember, she already won a, something to pri and then had it taken away from her at a card game. The last thing on her mind, go to the movie show. So Faulkner makes no judgments, but he's put these two worlds against each other and we're just aware of this horrible divide and this lack of contact between human beings. That they, that they remain separate in these worlds and it just adds to the pathos of the... Um, so, one of the things that Faulkner's doing is making us aware of these invisible things going on in the earth, but he's also making us aware of these things that other people don't see in the differences between the races and, and, and the values that operate. She wants to get to the picture show, she can't be bothered with this. He can't make any sense of it at all. And because of the way he's done it for us, we go through this ordeal with him, that he is overwhelmed in grief. Um, he has no help from religion, doesn't believe in God. Um, if anything, he's angry at him because he says Molly had no quarrel with him. And, um, um, and no support from a marriage because he's lost, he's alone. He's absolutely alone. So a wonderful story um, there. Um, quickly, because it's, it's much later than I want to do this very, very quickly. Turn to the old people. You remember that at, in the beginning, Ike is 12 at this point. When you go to um, the bear, he'll be 9 and then 10, and at 10 he'll be able to go on his first hunt. And we get So we go back in time and then forwards we watch Sam Father's um, tutoring, teaching Ike the ways of the wood. Here, he just made his first kill on page 158. Um, it says, the boy did not remember that shot at all. He would live to be 80. So we know the story ends when Ike is 80. And, and that's beyond the events of this. It's not yet, but we know that he dies at 80. As his father and his father's twin brother and their father in his turn had lived to be, but he would never hear that shot nor remember even the shock of the gun butt. He didn't even remember what he did with the gun afterwards. He was running. He goes, I mean, he's an exciting, he just made his first kill. Don't walk up to him from in front, Sam said. If he ain't dead, he will cut you all to pieces with his feet. Walk up to him from behind and take him by the horn first so that you can hold his head down until you can jump away and slip your other hand down and hook your fingers in his nostrils. The boy did that threw the head back and the throat taut and drew Sam Father's knife across the throat and Sam stooped and dipped his hand in the hot smoking blood and wiped them back and forth across the boy's face. Then Sam's horn rang out in the wet gray woods and again and again and then all the hunters come and ask how he did. Go on over. Sam says he's done alright. They were the white boy Marked, for, marked forever, and the old dark man sired on both sides by savage kings who had marked him, whose bloody hands had merely formally consecrated him to that which under the man's tutelage he had already accepted, humbly and joyfully, with abnegation and with pride too, the hands, the touch, the first worthy blood which he had been found at last worthy to draw, joining him and the man forever, so that the man would continue to live past the boy's 70 years and then 80 years, long after the man himself had entered the earth as chiefs and kings. His spirit is going to outlive him. He's, 
So over and over again, Wagner keeps giving the sense there's something more there, always. The, the, our mortality just doesn't end things. That something, our spirit, I, 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 we all know this, you know, it wasn't just the DNA, I mean, it's there, but when somebody dies, don't we all, you know, I, when I called John, when I knew he was gonna die and spoke with him, I told him over the phone that he's been one of the greatest gifts in my life, just to thank him for that. He said the same for me, I and mean, we've been dear friends. That person's not absent. He's not, you know, for any of us who care about somebody, even when they're gone, we still have our memories. Um, they may not physically be here, but something, that, that spirit doesn't just disappear, never. Um, he goes, I, I, we don't have time to look at this. Um, we, we get um, descriptions of Sam Fathers. Remember that he was sold from Ikamatubi, the chief, and um, he's been teaching Ike the ways of the force that could only be learned from an Indian, somebody who was one with it, that civilized man don't, doesn't know. Now remember, I, said, I think I said this last time, hold this in your mind. Remember, in one sense, the land speaks, the wilderness speaks, that over and over again, we keep getting, I'll read them next week. The land speaks, Every like Hopkins, everything speaks. The wilderness speaks, when we get these descriptions of Ike hunting, it's almost as if the wilderness is listening and leaning and, you know, over, if you get those, read them. It's almost like he's one with it and the wilderness is responsive. It's not an inert, dead thing. Um, where is it going? Um, oh, God. Sorry, I cut him. Those voices outside caught me in. Um, it's, it's, oh, oh, the land speaks. There's a, no, sorry. There's a difference between the wilderness and the land. Because remember, the land was inherited and sold, and I, we keep getting the descriptions, it was never the Indians to sell to Sutpans, it was never his to sell to the Compsons, and, or I mean the, the McCaslins. And was never the um, um, the old man's to, to to give on to Ike's, and there's that passage that I quoted from Molly. Remember when Molly says, in in the fire in the heart, what's God is God's, and she's worried about Lucas because he's bringing a curse on himself because what's God is God's and nature is God's. So Faulkner's got this fundamental distinction running through the whole thing: is the wilderness speaks. But when man takes over the land and he becomes possessive, it changes everything he does in the world. The way he relates to the land, the way he relates to everybody else. As soon as you say, it's mine, it becomes an object to possess. And that shows in the marriages, in the interactions between people, blacks and whites. So um, Sam, is that clear? There's two things that are in tension here the wilderness and what man does with it. If, if you remember back when we did the Blake poem, remember the Blake London, the Thames, the chartered Thames, you know, with all the, this, this runs through these poets that there's this sense that something happens as a result of the fall that, that makes things dark. And it happens when we act like we're in possession of these things like they're ours and the effect that it has on us. 
Sam is taking Ike back to something more primitive. He's teaching him a way of being in the woods when there was not this tangible sense of ownership hanging over him. So it, all these descriptions of Sam um, teaching him the way. And then we get to this instant when, um, on this particular outing, they're leaving camp and suddenly Boone sees this deer. This is on page 172 for me. He thinks it's got 14 points on its head. And remember how reliable Boone is. I mean, I, if you've read The Bear, you know. I mean, he's this lovable, lovable guy, but there, there's nothing he doesn't exaggerate. He, he says it's 14 points. The, the hunters get excited. They're on their way out of camp. They stop, and all of them go into, the, into the, the bush, the forest, together. Sam and Ike are together, and Walter Ewald, who never misses, there's those, ep, those epic ep, goes on. Sam and Ike have to stop because he's a boy and he can't have the better settings you know, to hunt. He has to, he has to learn humility, he has to take the inferior one. He's there um, with Sam and then suddenly they hear this shot. Now hold on, I want, I've got to find it. Um, on my 174, um, I'm going to skip ahead really quickly, so try to stay with me here, because this is the end, and then we're, we'll finish here. Sam's right, Walter said he moved, slamming the worn, silver-colored barrel of his rifle downward to walk with it again. A little more moving and a little more quiet, too. Five miles is still Hagenbeck range. <laughs> Boone never takes a shower, so he always stinks. I mean, they never, they never pass up a chance to laugh at it. And remember, there's that line, I can't, I don't remember what it is. They, they describe the bear as um, only running away because Boone had a knife. Because they said the, the bear would have known that if Boone had a gun, it was safe. Because <laughs> Boone, never, Boone never hit anything in his life with a rifle. Anyway, so they always make fun of him. As a, as a here, here, Walter's making fun of him because he stinks so bad. And, Five miles of still Hagenbeck range. Even if we wasn't downwind, they went on. The boy could still hear Boone talking, though presently that ceased to go down. There was only the soaring and somber solitude in the dim light. There was the thin murmur of the faint cold rain, which had not ceased all day. This is so, he's so stunning. I mean, it makes it so, I think all of us have been in a, a forest, you know, woods when it's raining and it's gray and then as if, then as if it had waited for them to find their position and become still, the wilderness breathed again. But there it is. I mean, he does that all the time. It seemed to lean inward above them, above himself and Sam and Walter and Boone in their separate lurking places. Tremendous, attentive, impartial, and omniscient. The buck moving in it somewhere, not running yet, since he had not been pursued, not frightened yet, and never fearsome, but just alert also as they were alert, perhaps already circling back, perhaps quite near, perhaps conscious also of the eye of the ancient immortal umpire. Because he was just 12 then, in that morning something had happened to him. In less than a second, he had ceased forever to be the child he was yesterday. Or perhaps that made no difference. Perhaps even a city-bred man, let alone a child, 
could not have understood it. Perhaps only a country-bred one could comprehend loving the life he spills. He began to shake again. I'm glad it started now, he whispered. He did not move to speak. Only his lips shaped the expiring words. Then it will be gone when I raise the gun. Nor did Sam say, hush, he said. Hush, he said. Is he that near, the boy whispered. Do you think, hush, Sam said. So he hushed. But he could not stop the shaking. He did not try because he knew it would go away when he needed the steadiness. Had not Sam fathers already consecrated and absolved? Notice the religious. Remember it was that when he, I mean, this is amazing. He took blood. How important is blood for us as Christians? He took blood and baptized him. That ritual the Indians did. The, the Indians would have known this somehow intuitively to do that. It's one way of marking your relationship with a with the source of the life that feeds you. We we go to the store and open cans. God, that makes me mad. Oh, truly, kids want they want meat. Go to the, go to the meat counter and get it. Who kills a chicken anymore, or you know, I mean, or or picks fruit, or um. Sam Fathers had already consecrated and absolved him from the weakness and the regret too, not from love and pity for all which lived and ran and then ceased to live in a second in the very midst of splendor and speed, but from weakness and regret. So they stood motionless, breathing deep and quiet and steady. If there had been any sun, it would be near to setting now. There was a condensing, a, a densifying of what he had thought was the gray and unchanging light until he realized suddenly that it was his own breathing, his heart, his blood, something, all things, and that Sam Fathers had marked him indeed, not as a mere hunter, but with something Sam had had in his turn of his vanished and forgotten people. He's, he's tied intimately with the past. He carries the past with him. He stopped breathing then, and there was only his heart, his blood, and in the following silence, the wilderness ceased to breathe also, leaning, stooping overhead with its breath held. Tremendous, God, this is, <laughs> they're one with each other. There's this connaturality. Where in the modern world do we have that? I mean, this sense of connaturality that you are one with something, even while you remain distinct um, and impartial and waiting. Then the shaking stopped too, as he had known it would. Then it had passed, it was over. The solitude did not breathe again yet. It had merely stopped watching. Go down in the middle. No, no, knowing already that it was too late, thinking with that old despair of two or three years ago, I'll never get a shot. Then he heard it. The flat single clap of Alter, Walter Ewald's rifle, which never missed. There's that epic epithet. Remember the epithets, Athena the Grey Eye? Walter Ewald, who never misses. Um, rifle which never missed. Then the mellow sound of the horn came down the ridge and something went out of him and he knew then that he had never expected to get the shot at all. I reckon that's it, he said. Walter got him. He'd raised the gun slightly without knowing it. He lowered it again, lowered one of the hammers when already moving out of the thicket when Sam spoke, wait, wait, voice cried. And he would remember that how he turned upon Sam in the truculence of a boy's grief over the missed opportunity in Miss Puck. For what? Don't you hear that horn? He, he's whining. I mean, he just, he's so angry. Um, what is Sam Fathers teaching this boy? Okay, now just hold it, because he says, wait. 
and he's got this truculence, this feeling sorry for himself because the opportunity's gone now. Sam had not moved. He was not tall, squat rather, and broad, and the boy had been growing fast for the past year or so, and there was not so much difference between them in height. But Sam was looking over the boy's head and up the ridge towards the sound of the horn, and the boy knew that Sam did not even see him, that Sam knew that he was still there beside him, but he did not see the boy. Then the boy saw the buck. It was coming down the ridge as if it were walking out of the very sound of the horn which related its death. It was not running, it was walking, tremendous, unhurried, slanting and tilting its head to pass the antlers through the undergrowth. And the boy standing with Sam beside him, and now instead of behind him, as Sam always stood, and the gun still partly aimed, and one of the hammers still cocked, then he saw them, then it saw them. And it still did not begin to run, it just stopped for an instant, taller than any man, looking at them, then its muscles suppled, gathered. It did not even alter its course, not fleeing, not even running, just moving with that winged and effortless ease with which deer move. Passing within 20 feet of them, its head high and the eye not proud and not haughty, but just full and wild and unafraid. And Sam standing beside the boy now, his right arm raised at full length, palm outward speaking, in that tongue which the boy had learned from listening to him and Joe Baker in the blacksmith shop. While up the ridge, Walter Ewell's horn was still blowing them into a dead buck. Olay chief, Sam said, grandfather. So Sam holds his hand up to the deer and says, Olay chief, grandfather. When they reached Walter, he was standing with his back towards them. He tells Sam to come over, go down a few lines. Um, Sam comes over to Walter, who's over the deer, but just look at the track he was making. It's pretty near big as a cow's. If there were any more tracks here besides the ones he's laying in, I would swear there was another buck here that I never even saw. Now what's going on? What's happened here? Sam teaching him to see. To see what? To see what others don't see. To wow. See, <laughs> what? see the essence of nature and past. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't use the word essence because that sounds so Thomistic. And, but, but the spirit, the, the great spirit, the Indians believed, you know, um, in, the, in the spirit of things, the great spirit of the earth and, you know, all things. And so Sam's teaching him to see something. And, and, but what's the irony here? When they come to the and, and by the way, it goes on to see, or it goes on to show, that this was not a buck with, or I mean, a, you know, a buck with 14 points. It's, bare, you know, it's barely out of its youth. And um, so we, we, we're, we're shown to be careful of what we believe from Boone, that he's not always going to be reliable. Walter kills him anyway because he, you know, they're there to do it. But he says, if there were any more truck tracks here beside the ones he's laying in. I would swear there was another buck here that I never even saw. What's the irony? There was, and the men don't see it. These are all hunters. They're the ones that Ike has measured himself against as a boy. But Sam has begun to teach him that there are other things there that even the men don't see. You can call it the spirit of the deer. You can also call it poetry if you like, that he's 
teaching them a different way of seeing things that other people don't see. One, one last question, and then we'll stop. You know at the very end, Kaz and Ike are arguing, and Kaz is pressing Ike to describe what he saw, and Ike is absolutely convinced that what he saw was real. So there's a question here of a kind of skepticism that some people would, would disbelieve what he saw. If he told them that story, they would scoff at him. Um, and then at the end, it becomes clear that Sam took Kaz in that. So it ends saying, Ike said, I saw him. It was there. And then he says, um, Besides, what would it want itself knocking around here out there when it never had enough time about the earth as it was, when there's plenty of room about the earth, plenty of places still unchanged, if, if unchanged from what they were when the blood used and pleasured in them while it was still blood? It's talking about the earth, the things of the earth, the seeds, the acorns, things of the earth coming back. But we want them, the boy said, we want them too. There's plenty of room for us and them too. This theme of the land that it's fecund that there's something of the earth. Otherwise, how could things grow? Where do things come from? There's plenty of room for us and them too. There's plenty of room for us and them too. That's right, McCasland said. Suppose they don't have substance, can't cast a shadow. But I saw it, the boy cried. I saw him. Steady, McCasland said. For an instant, his hand touched the boy's flank beneath the covers. Steady. I know you did. So did I. Sam took me in there once after I killed my first deer. Now, Kaz saw it. Kaz is the owner, will go to be the owner of um, the plantation. I don't know what to make of that except to leave you with a question. Does that affect what he does? Does he hold on to that? How important is relinquishing things, giving them up to renounce them in order to hold on to that. Is that clear? Both of them see it. When, when Ike reaches 21, you know that he's going to relinquish his claim on the land. He's going to renounce it. He will give it up. It's his way, and we won't know why until the bear, but it's his way of trying to stop the sins, this possessiveness, and what it does to people. Sam showed him the spirit of the deer. He saw it. So did Kaz. Kaz is going to become the owner. Will being the owner change what Sam gave him? What does that ownership do to people? It's a question I just put out. You know, you, you, we won't be able to answer it until the bear and... But it's something to keep in mind. I mean, we know Kaz from, um, from um, pantaloons and more importantly from... Uh, um, Fire in the hearth, right? He owns it. He's the one who gets serious with Lucas. And does this possessiveness change the way we see things? Um, I just I throw. I, we can't answer it right now because it's the way the chapter ends. But it's a question to keep in mind. Okay. One last thing, just about if you put the two chapters together, it's really interesting that Faulkner is showing us things that other people don't see. We learn to get inside Ryder and carry him. Um, think about the ordeal that would have left Faulkner with as a writer for him to, I mean, I'm saying that because I told you he went on these drinking binges every time he finished a work that 
Um, he was a heavy drinker in binge periods. He wasn't an alcoholic, but the ordeal that it cost him to, to, to do what he did as an artist, the cost of being an artist, to try to... Anyway, he shows us something, a writer, that the other people don't see. And then in The Old People, we learn to see something that Ike learns to see, that the hunters, who are these mature, honored men, um, how important is all of that for understanding the land and what's happened in the South with the possessiveness and what it does to people? So those are the those are the sort of major concerns that we have through this book. Any questions? I, I know we came at this late because of everything I did with. But any? Do you want to take? Tom, do you have something? Sorry? Yeah, how he's confronting racism, but the objectification of slaves and black people. Right. And it's the fact that he gets down to this level yeah. and is, is, is he planting seeds so people wake up yeah. to what the fact happened. Yeah. yeah. But it's like it's going to take a long time before that. Yeah, when is he writing this? You know what the irony, just, just to add, well, this is 1941, 1942. The great irony is a lot of black Americans do not want to read this because he used the word nigger and it's insulting. Oh, oh. As a matter of fact, this book is censored in places because he uses the word nigger. Oh, really? Now what? what Same thing with Flannery O'Connor. Some of her books were outlawed from school. Huh? What, what, what is the about what he's writing? This is 1941. 1941? Yeah. Oh, wow. It's published in 1942. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, right. We're just, we're just born then. Yeah. But it's like... Uh, and the war, the war is just in... Yeah. Culture. Yeah. 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 Yeah.